Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. This is Rick Ferraro, cardiology fellow at Johns Hopkins Hospital. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about lifestyle and pharmacologic management of obesity. This is the second episode in our three-part series on one of the biggest problems playing the country right now and the impact on cardiovascular disease risk. To tackle this large task, we have series co-chair Gurleen Kaur, internal medicine resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital, director of the CardiNerds internship, and chief of House Eindhoven. Gurleen, let us know who else will be joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much, Rick. Today we have Dr. Ali Bajay joining us from the land of the Buckeye Nut, Columbus, Ohio, where she's currently in her last year of fellowship at The Ohio State University. Her specific interests within cardiology include prevention, lipids, and women's cardiovascular health. Ali, who will be joining us as our faculty expert today. Thanks for the wonderful introduction, Gurleen. I'm super excited to join all of you for this episode. I have the pleasure of introducing our faculty expert, Dr. Ambarish Pandey. Dr. Pandey is a staff cardiologist, associate professor of medicine, and medical director of the Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction Program at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Trained in clinical research, he has published extensively in the fields of preventative cardiology and HEPPEF. Dr. Pandey earned his medical degree at the All India Institute of Medical Sciences before completing a research fellowship in nanomedicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He then moved to the big state of Texas for internal medicine residency and cardiology fellowship at UT Southwestern, where he also got a master's degree in clinical sciences. Dr. Pandey, welcome to CardioNerds. Thanks, Ali, Gulen, and Rick. I'm excited to be here and talk about this important problem of obesity and how we can tackle them in the current era. So excited to be here on the CardioNerds podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Pandey. We're so excited to learn from you. And let's just start off with a case from the CardioNerds clinic. So we have Mr. Sed Anturi, who is a 45-year-old male with no past medical history, a BMI of 29, and waist circumference of 115 centimeters. He works a desk job in IT, eats mostly top ramen and TV dinners for convenience, and does not do any dedicated exercise because he's been able to maintain his figure naturally. His HDL is 38, triglycerides 160, LDL cholesterol 120, and an A1C of 5.5%, and his blood pressure in clinic is 125 over 75. When you see him in clinic, you recognize several cardiovascular risks that are worth discussing. So Dr. Pandey, can you start off by telling us how obesity is defined and how does Mr. Antri's waist circumference play into his obesity assessment? Thanks, Gulen. So this is one of those cases that are not uncommon to us when we take care of our patients in primary care clinic or even cardiology clinic. And looking at this individual's vital signs and anthropometric measures, it's important to talk about obesity here. So the traditional definition of obesity is based on body mass index and the cutoff used to define obesity is more than 30 kilogram per meter square. And in this case, Mr. Antry has a BMI of 29, so he technically does not meet the criteria of obesity. He falls in the overweight range, which ranges from 25 to less than 30. And it's important to know that BMI, while most commonly used to define obesity, is a very crude measure of obesity and the general lies in the details of the other anthropometric parameters. And the most important factor in Mr. Andre's case is the waist circumference, which I think was of 115 centimeters. 
and a waist circumference more than 102 centimeter for men is usually considered significantly higher or in the range of central obesity or excess central adiposity. So he does meet the criteria for having excess central adiposity or central obesity. And I think that is something that is really important for his overall and metabolic risk and something that we should focus on as part of his prevention program for reducing cardiovascular risk. Thank you for that informative overview, Dr. Pandy. It sounds like we should definitely be paying attention not only just to the crude weight numbers, but also waist circumference in our patients as they both confer increased cardiovascular risk. There is an overwhelming amount of information nowadays surrounding lifestyle modification for obesity. Would you mind walking us through some current lifestyle recommendations for obesity? Yes, certainly. I think over time, as we see the burden of obesity grow in our society, it's really important to focus on the existing recommendations and existing lifestyle recommendations, particularly as a first line of defense against obesity. So the current ACC AHA guidelines suggest that among individuals with obesity, we should target reducing caloric intake by at least 500 kilocalories per day. And for much higher obesity ranges or with severe obesity, you can also think about more severe caloric restrictions. And there's also recommendation for lifestyle changes in terms of the diet and including a plant-based hypocaloric Mediterranean diet with low carbohydrate that ranges from around 50 to 130 grams per day or very low carbohydrate diet that ranges from 20 to 50 grams per day. And also focus on low fat diet with less than 30% of your total energy coming from fat. There's also emphasis on high protein diet to maintain lean mass and promote satiety and as well as to promote diets that are less constituent of sugar and include more healthy food like fruits and vegetables. There's also a lot of focus, especially in the European guidelines on intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating, although the benefits are largely driven by caloric restriction that you achieve through intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding as well. And overall, more important than any one diet or feeding pattern, it's really important to focus on the dietary principle to which one adheres. And in that regard, a plant-based diet rich in whole grains, vegetables, fruits, nuts, fiber-rich foods, while replacing saturated and unsaturated fats and reducing salt and sugar intake, especially from sugary beverages, is kind of the overarching theme of the prevailing lifestyle modification. It's also important to focus on exercise and make sure that you have a healthy amounts of exercise built into your day-to-day -day schedule as part of lifestyle recommendations. And the current guidelines recommend up to 150 minutes a week of regular moderate intensity exercise to improve overall cardiovascular health. Thank you so much, Dr. Pandey, for walking us through that. And it's just really important to think about how to use that information to counsel our patients on both the exercise aspect as well as the lifestyle and diet. So something that I'll really take away for my patients in clinic. And it's no surprise that obesity is on the rise in the U.S. And with this growing epidemic that we're talking about, there's also a new class called severe morbid obesity, which is a BMI of 40 or greater or a BMI of 35 or greater with at least one comorbidity. And this represents about 10% of people in the U.S. currently and accounts for nearly 20% of the heart failure patient. I'm curious, Dr. Pandey, how would your approach to counseling this type of patient differ from the patient we just saw in the CardioNerds clinic whose BMI was 29? Right. I think that's a great point. And more and more, we are seeing the burden of obesity is growing and a larger proportion of patients that we see nowadays have morbid obesity or more severe forms of obesity. 
And as you mentioned correctly, I think these patients have much higher risk of adverse cardiovascular events. So our risk-based approach would mandate a greater emphasis on a BMI reduction or obesity reduction in these patients. So I think it all starts with lifestyle modification and highlighting the need for caloric restriction and even going beyond this 500 kilocalories per day, but rather focusing on more hypocaloric diet and also emphasizing the need for behavioral modifications because a lot of the times eating is associated with other behavioral disorders and really important to get a psychosocial assessment and focus on behavioral modification strategies. And also as your BMI is in the higher range, you see a higher burden of other cardiovascular risk factors. And it's really important to emphasize reducing the burden of other traditional cardiovascular risk factors that accompany individuals with higher BMI. And I think it's really important also to consider beyond just lifestyle modifications in these patients as the guidelines would recommend and consider strategies such as surgical weight loss or surgical weight reduction and pharmacotherapies, which have now been shown to be effective in individuals with uh, very high BMI and also increased cardiovascular risk. Thank you for walking us through how you would counsel patients regarding lifestyle modifications. I like how you mentioned a very holistic and comprehensive approach to weight loss, not just the caloric restriction part, but also getting down to the root of the issue with the psychosocial assessment. For our patients with obesity, we can discuss lowering calorie intake or increasing activity, but it's also important to understand what barriers they face to implementing these recommendations. Patients may live in areas of food deserts where access to healthy foods is not the same as other areas or be in neighborhoods where they can't safely take a walk around their neighborhood. Can you share with us how social determinants of health factor into obesity and cardiovascular risk factors and what we can do as clinicians to help? No, absolutely. I think that's a very, very important point. I think a lot of the risk associated with obesity are compounded by adverse social determinants of health and adverse social determinants of health actually are often the root cause of increasing burden of obesity in certain strata of the society, particularly among individuals of low socioeconomic status, as well as among individuals of self-reported black or Hispanic race. And I think, uh, as you rightly mentioned, access to healthy food is key. And a lot of the patients can only afford food that is caloric dense because the per calorie cost of caloric dense food is much cheaper than that of healthy foods. And also, I think if you're living in an area where all you have is fast food restaurants, then that's what you're going to eat. So as you rightly mentioned, I think it's really important to dive into the root cause of the eating behavior that patients have when we're trying to address important issues like obesity. And same applies for regular exercise. While the guidelines recommend doing 150 minutes of exercise on most days of week, we need to have access to safe neighborhoods where you can walk around and walkable neighborhoods are in this country a luxury and not something that is always available. As a result, we see a much higher burden of obesity among socioeconomically disadvantaged patients and among patients who live in areas with higher socioeconomic distress. And I think as clinicians, we need to understand the root cause that is driving the the dietary behavior that is driving the lifestyle behavior and try to work with the patients to identify what are the potentially modifiable drivers that we can address. And I think that is uh, where I think we can make more of a difference in patient behavior rather than just using a one-size-fits-all prescription of activity and diet for all patients. Dr. Pende, a lot of things you said there I want to go back to and, and listen to again, because particularly the social determinants of health and some of the disparities we deal with are really crucial to our practice as providers. And I appreciate you spending some time on that. 
Sort of related to that, it's been great to learn about some of these changes we can implement at the individual clinician level to address the obesity pandemic, but obviously it's an issue that's more far-reaching than that. What sort of policy and legislation in dealing with obesity as a national public health issue? I know in particular that there's recently been some attention to drug pricing regulation, and I think we'll get to some of this later, but some of these obesity drugs are not inexpensive. And so we'd love to hear more of your thoughts on what we can do on a national public health level. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think I would say that for preventing obesity, I think the government, the policymakers and the public health workforce has to all act in unison because this is a public health crisis. In 2001, the Surgeon General of the United States had a call to action to prevent and decrease overweight and obesity in the country. And it identified obesity as a key public health priority for this country. And to address the obesity pandemic, the government has taken a lot of steps and we have to think about obesity in the context of environmental default conditions that promote obesity. And as humans, we are heavily influenced in our behavior by the default conditions in our environment. And several health policy approaches have been implemented to tweak or modify these default conditions. And these range from for example, taxation on unhealthy food and sugary beverages, putting a front-of-the-pack traffic light nutrition labeling system on the food packaging, and the reduction of marketing of unhealthy foods and beverages to uh, children. And as you know, beverages that have added sugar are one of the prime candidates for taxation and potentially modify obesity. They constitute over 10% of caloric intake nationwide. And they have almost no nutritional value. And some of the states have taken this onus on them to impose taxations on these sugary beverages. And that has resulted in a reduction in their uptake. And also epidemiological studies from cohorts like the Cardia study have shown that such policy changes actually led to a reduction in the risk factor burden and obesity. But this has not happened at the federal level because of the lobbying from these sugary drink companies and industry. So I think there's still a lot more effort required at a federal level and also at the local level from governments to really promote healthy diet and prevent uptake of unhealthy and caloric dense food like sugary beverages. And I think a lot more can be done in that space. And I think I would love to see more impetus from the federal and state governments on preventing obesity as their primary health promotion activity. So that's been a great discussion on lifestyle modification. Thank you so much, Dr. Pandey, for walking us through all of that and also how we should be taking into account social determinants of health and what can be done at a policy level. Now we'll shift towards talking about medications for obesity. While lifestyle modifications are certainly the cornerstone of obesity treatment, many patients struggle with keeping the weight off. Thankfully, we have a few older and newer pharmacotherapy options to help with this. The one agonists have gained some serious popularity lately for their impressive weight loss results, and we recently did a deeper dive on those agents in our episodes with Drs. Brumer, McGuire, and Pagadapati. But let's take a step back for a second and talk about our options. Dr. Pandey, would you mind walking us through the different medications that are available for Give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes, definitely. I think, as you rightly said, while lifestyle modification is the first step towards managing obesity, we should certainly not get hung up on lifestyle modification and not progress to using pharmacotherapies or even surgical therapies among patients who have morbid obesity or obesity with cardiovascular disease. Now, FDA has approved, I think, six medications for weight loss. Some of them are older, such as bupropion, naltrexone, early stat, pentamintopramate, and so the newer medications like the GLP-1 agonist, two of which have been approved for weight loss, including 
liraglutide and semaglutide. And then also most recently, trizepatide was approved for weight loss indication. And then there's another medication called setmelanotide that is also approved for weight loss indication as well for certain mutation-based morbid obesity. How does the amount of long-term weight loss differ between each of these meds? And are there other factors that you could take into consideration to choose amongst these agents? Yes, I think that's a great question. And as newer weight loss therapies have come to the forefront, we have seen an improvement in the efficacy of weight loss with use of pharmacotherapies. Also, the safety profile of these medications has generally improved over time. So I would start with the most recently approved agent for weight loss, which is trizepatide, and that can achieve up to 22 to 23% weight loss or up to 50 or more pounds of weight loss in the latest surmount trial that was done as compared to placebo. In contrast, semaglutide can achieve up to 16% weight loss. Liraglutide, the older generation GLP-1, can get up to 6% weight loss. And all the older weight loss agents like Orlistat, Fentramine, Topramate, and Naltrexone, Bipropion, usually achieve anywhere between 6 to 10% of weight loss. And I would say that when you're considering prescribing weight loss medications in patients in the current clinical practice, I think the options that you're going to be choosing from are mostly going to be semaglutide versus trizepatide because those are the most effective in achieving weight loss and maintaining weight loss and also have most favorable side effects. And as we have seen over the last couple of weeks, have potential cardiovascular benefits that go beyond weight loss. Yeah, that's really exciting, Dr. Pandey, and a huge amount of really interesting work that's come out recently. One of the trials that's not as recent was the STEP-8 trial, and we'd love to talk to you a little bit more about this. This compared head-to-head semaglutide and liraglutide, which are both GLP-1 agonists, in a randomized trial of patients with obesity without diabetes. Could you walk us through the results of this trial and some of your thoughts in general on considerations for choosing between GLP-1 agonists when you're prescribing them to patients? Yeah, I think that's a very important question. As more and more therapeutic options are becoming available to us, it's really important for us to know the whole picture associated with each drug so that we can make the right choice for the right patient. And I think STEP-8 trial was one of those informative studies that compared semaglutide versus daily liraglutide, which is an older generation GLP-1, and looked at the body weight changes among overweight to obese individuals without diabetes. And this was a randomized control trial that included around 300 patients. And I think the weight loss that was achieved with semaglutide was to the order of 16% as compared to around 6% weight loss that was achieved with liraglutide. And this difference was statistically significant. And I think that's highlighting that the newer generation weight loss agent like semaglutide does indeed achieve greater proportion of weight loss as compared with the older generation with liraglutide. And also the proportion of participants that met the criteria for 10% or 15% or 20% weight loss was also greater among participants who took semaglutide versus liraglutide. And it is important to note that it was not just the efficacy in weight loss that was greater with semaglutide. The tolerance of the drug and the side effect profile was also better with semaglutide. And the proportion of participants that discontinued treatment for any reason was around 13.5% semaglutide and 27.6% with liraglutide. And so it's almost half as much discontinuation rate in semaglutide compared to liraglutide. And majority of the adverse events reported were of gastrointestinal nature, contributing around 80% in both semaglutide and liraglutide arms. So thus, This was one of those trials that established semaglutide as the go-to drug as compared with the earlier generation liraglutide for weight loss in a both safe and effective manner. 
Thank you so much for walking us through that. And that point about side effect being different is also really important because we know that some patients do experience adverse GI side effects that can limit the use of these medications. And now that we've been talking about semaglutide particularly, we can't go without discussing the SELECT trial that was published and presented at the American Heart Association 2023 meeting that randomized patients with pre-existing cardiovascular disease and a BMI of 27 or greater but no history of diabetes to weekly semaglutide or placebo. We know that the trial showed that semaglutide reduced the incidence of the primary composite endpoint of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke by 20% as compared to placebo. Dr. Pandey, can you share a little bit more about this trial and whether the benefits are driven by weight loss alone or are there also semaglutide-specific effects? That's a great thing to bring up now. And this was my favorite study presented as a late-breaking trial at AHA. And for the first time, we had a weight loss agent being tested among individuals with established cardiovascular disease and overweight or obesity without diabetes. And the treatment effect that was noticed with use of semaglutide in this large trial that included over 17,000 patients with a 40-month follow-up was pretty amazing. I think there was up to 20% reduction in risk of primary composite endpoint. And also, I think there was a sustained improvement in risk of secondary endpoints, including all-cause death. That was reduced by 19% and was noted in this study. There was consistent reduction also noticed in heart failure hospitalization. We all know how obesity is one of the major drivers of heart failure risk. And this trial was really important because up to 30% patients in this study had prior history of heart failure hospitalization. And thus, I think there was opportunity to test the efficacy of this drug among individuals with heart failure as well. And this kind of dispels the notion of obesity paradox or higher body weight being good for you if you have cardiovascular diseases like heart failure. So I think the relative risk reduction of 20% for primary composite MACE events was really fantastic. And it was great to see that we have a therapy that can not only reduce weight, but also reduce cardiovascular risk in the long term. And the absolute risk reduction was of the order of 1.5%, which is quite substantial when you are trying to think about the numbers needed to treat. And I think the second part of your question, which is about whether or not the benefits are related to weight loss or something else, I think that's a much harder question because there's no way to separate that, I think, causality or what was the driver of the benefit based on just this one study. I think they will probably publish secondary analyses looking at the degree of weight loss achieved and treatment benefits. So I think that will provide us more meaningful information related to whether or not all of the benefits were driven by weight loss or something else. But I think for now, all we can say is that using semaglutide 2.4 milligrams once weekly among individuals with obesity and cardiovascular disease is associated with a significant reduction in risk of major adverse cardiovascular events. And I think that is a finding that is potentially practice changing and gives us a new tool for prevention, particularly secondary prevention in this patient population. Yeah, Dr. Pende, really eye-opening results. And I think a presentation and certainly a discussion that we've been having in social media space, in our classrooms, all over that, that we're going to remember for a long time because this really feels like a big moment for preventative cardiology. One follow-up question I was hoping to ask, you know, we talked about Surmount briefly. Terzepatide is also an agent that has gotten some press. Obviously, semaglutide with the SELECT trial is more recently in the press. Do you have any thoughts on terzepatide and the dual GLP-1, GIP agonist? Are we going to see anything from that in the future? 
Yeah, I think uh, there is a lot of data coming out on dual as well as triple agonists, which I'll talk to you about in a little bit. But trisepatide is a dual agonist that is being also tested in a CBOT outcomes trial called Surmount MMO. I am involved in the steering committee of the trial, so we are currently enrolling and we should have those results in the coming years or months. And it's really an exciting phase in management of obesity in the current era because we have all these new therapies coming out. I think trisepatide is going to be another agent that we have to look forward to. But outside of trisepatide, there's also a triple agonist, which is a GIP-GLP glucagon receptor agonist that was recently tested. It's called triterotide. And I think it had an 18 to 24% weight loss that was noted in the recent study published in the New Journal of Medicine. There's also an oral version of semaglutide that is being tested and at a dose of 50 milligrams daily, I think it had a pretty significant weight loss also. So there's a lot of newer data coming out with newer agents and I think Select is just a start and I think we're going to see a lot of really exciting studies in weight loss and their cardiovascular benefits come to the forefront in the coming years and I think it's going to be like the SGLT2 era that started a decade ago with uh, Emporeg outcome. I think this is what we are seeing with Select or GLP and in creatine-based therapies for obesity. Thank you so much, Dr. Pandy. This is really exciting stuff. I know you mentioned the word exciting, but we've come so far in the world of prevention and now we can offer so much more than just diet and exercise for our morbidly obese patients that are really needing a lot of help from a cardiovascular prevention standpoint and also obesity treatment standpoint. To sort of circle back to semaglutide, it seems like now there's more and more indications to use it given the benefit even in patients without diabetes. However, GLP-1 agonists can have side effects. In the STEP-8 study, for example, there was a high percentage of participants who reported adverse events, with the majority being GI complaints. Liraglutide had a discontinuation rate of 12% because of these same issues. Can you walk us through what your approach is to patients who don't tolerate the GLP-1 agents because of GI side effects and how you approach that? Yeah, I think that's a very important consideration when it comes to using these drugs in a clinical practice. And I think even in the SELECT trial that was just published, I think the discontinuation rate for adverse events was around 16% in semaglutide and I think 8% in placebo. So I think it is an important factor in use of these drugs. And when I uh, use semaglutide, I started the low dose and I gradually uptighted the dose over a period of time and tried to get to the highest tolerated dose. I think that's what's most important. And I think you have to keep a close eye on the patient's symptom and you have to prepare them about potential side effects or the mechanism through which the drug works. You have to let them know that it works by inducing early satiety and you will feel full with less food. And I think you will expect some gastrointestinal discomfort. And I think that once patients are more aware of what to expect, I think the discontinuation rates are lower. But I think a lot of it also depends upon dietary and nutrition counseling and counseling about eating small portions of food and other dietary behaviors behavioral changes that are really important along with the medication initiation. So I focus a lot on starting at a lower dose, uptitrating slowly, dietary counseling that has to accompany initiation of these therapies and I think follow up to make sure that we are able to address the questions that patients have about whatever side effects they're encountering and can assure them that the side effects usually go away as you continue to be on the therapy. But also in cases where we are not able to tolerate the drug and I think the side effects become significant, that may lead to discontinuation. I think going down on the dose is one strategy that can work. And also switching the classes. And I think you can switch from semaglutide to trisepatide. I think that is also something that you can consider. And now trisepatide has been approved for obesity indication as well. So that gives you another option. 
So I think there are a lot of strategies that you can adopt. I think the key is to just make sure that the patient is aware of what to expect. And I think as long as we do that, I think we see greater acceptance and tolerance to these therapies as we start them de novo in these obese patients. So let's switch gears and dive into another case from the Cardinerts Clinic. Miss Addie Pose is a 46-year-old female with half PEF and has a BMI of 36. She's on spironolactone and furosemide. Dr. Pandey, can you share with us how her HEFPAF diagnosis impacts your decisions on which obesity medications to start, if any? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And your cardiac clinic looks a lot like my clinic, as I just had my HEFPAF clinic earlier today. And this is not uncommon. I think a burden of obesity in HEFPAF patient population is, I think, reaching 70 to 80% or more. And I think it's really important to address obesity as a risk factor and a potential driver of HEFPAF disease progression. So we really focus on starting them on therapies that can help. And with the recently published step HEFPEF trial that evaluated semaglutide in patients with HEFPEF, there was a significant improvement in quality of life and exercise capacity noted, which was much more impressive than a lot of the other pharmacotherapies that have been tested when it comes to quality of life and exercise capacity. And I think semaglutide is an important consideration for management of patients with obesity and HEFPEF. And I think that should be considered we usually start patients with HEFPEF on SGLT2 inhibitors and then semaglutide. We see them as a strategy to improve their quality of life as well as exercise capacity. That's great. And we've spent a good deal of time talking about GLP-1 agonists in different patient populations, most recently in HEFPEF. And you touched a little bit on Dr. Pandey about other meds under current study, including the combined GLP-1, GIP-1, and glucagon med. But can you just share with our audience a little bit more about what's on the horizon in terms of cardioprotective weight loss agents and where do you see this field of obesity and cardiometabolic medicine heading? Yeah, I think that's a great topic to talk about here because we are witnessing the dawn of an era where a lot of newer therapies for obesity management are going to be tested for cardiovascular benefits. And hopefully a lot of them would have favorable benefits that will lead to their adoption and uptake for prevention of cardiovascular diseases. So SELECT is one of the first trials that has been done in patients with obesity. As I mentioned, surmount MMO, which is testing trisepatide in patients with obesity but not diabetes, is currently underway. There are other therapies like oral semaglutide that is being evaluated for weight loss. And I think their outcome trials are not done yet. And then also there is now the triple agonist therapy that is GIP, GLP, and glucagon inhibitor that has shown up to like 20-25% weight loss in the initial weight loss study that was published in New England. So I think there's a lot of new therapies that are going to be coming to the forefront and that are going to be evaluated. And the more options we have for our patients, the better it is, because as we just discussed, many patients may have intolerance to one therapy, so they may need another option. And also all these newer therapies coming to the market will help us getting the price of these therapies more affordable and have more options for insurance for payers to avail for our patients. We certainly have a lot to look forward to in this field. It's definitely an exciting time to be in the world of prevention and obesity medicine. Dr. Pandey, would you summarize for our audience the key takeaways that our listeners should remember regarding lifestyle and pharmacologic management of obesity? Yes, definitely. For summary, I would say management of obesity starts with lifestyle modification, and that is the first step. We should focus on caloric restriction with whatever strategy works for you to have caloric restriction, improving physical activity. As clinicians, we should also focus on the root cause of the obesity as a behavioral, I think, challenge as well. We should focus on the social determinants of health that may be pushing our patients to unhealthy foods and inadequate exercise. 
And also, we should not shy away from starting considering pharmacotherapies among patients with morbid obesity or obesity with cardiovascular disease or significant risk factors. Because at the end of the day, we do need to think about cardiovascular risk prevention. And in the current era, medications such as semaglutide and trizepatide have been approved by FDA for weight loss. And they should be considered for these patients for achieving significant weight loss and potentially improving their cardiovascular outcomes in the long term. And when you're seeing patients with HFPEF, I think obesity is one of the key drivers of HFPEF. And targeting obesity management in HFPEF patients is paramount to improve their quality of life and also keep an eye out for the newer drugs that are on the horizon. And in the next few years, this field is going to get more exciting with a lot more drugs coming to the forefront for helping us with managing this growing epidemic. That was such a great summary. And thank you so much, Dr. Pandey, for your time and expertise today. Just such a thought-provoking discussion with the cardiovascular outcome trials and how to counsel a patient. And the point that you mentioned, the importance of starting appropriate obesity medications for cardiovascular risk reduction. One thing that we love asking our experts is what makes your heart flutter about the field of obesity medicine? What I am most passionate about in the field of obesity medicine is its link with heart failure, particularly heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And I spend a great deal of my time studying heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and understanding novel approaches to implement strategies to mitigate it from prevention standpoint and also management standpoint. And I'm just delighted to have therapies like semaglutide and other weight loss agents that can help us tackle this burden of obesity and coexisting heart failure that is also taking epidemic proportions in our country. Dr. Pandey, it's been such a privilege to speak with you and learn from you today. I really look forward to listening back to this episode because there are a huge number of points that deserve a second listen. And it's obvious that this is a really special moment in the field of prevention, the field of HFPAF, the field of obesity medicine. It's really an interdisciplinary moment and just tremendously excited to be a part of it and to talk to you about it today. The pleasure has been all mine. And I will say that when I was a resident and a med student, I would hear my senior professors talk about the era when aspirin was coming to the forefront and statin was coming to the forefront. And I would always feel envious of not being able to witness such transformative changes in cardiovascular management. But I will say that we are at the same, I think, equivalent time or equivalent era now where we are seeing this transformation of cardiometabolic disease management with therapies such as SGLD2 inhibitors and these weight loss agents. So I feel indeed that I'm very lucky to be here and be able to benefit from these advancements and be able to take part in improving the awareness about these therapies in our audience. Thanks for tuning in to another CardioNerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Shivani Reddy. I'm an intern in the CardioNerds Academy House Eindhoven and a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University School of Medicine. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to CardioNerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And team, one last thing. This episode is produced in collaboration with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology with independent medical education grant support from Nova Nordisk. And now it's time to make like an S2 and split. Beep. Beep.